Chapter Five of In Brief Authority by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Five, Dignity Under Difficulties. The luncheon, after the removal of the too loquacious boar's head, proceeded to Daphne's intense relief without any further incident, and at its conclusion, Queen Selina suggested a move to the terrace. One side of it faced the city far below another the slope of the road leading immediately to the courtyard, while from the third side steps descended by lower terraces to the palace gardens, which were apparently boundless. Beyond them, however, was a neglected region of groves and thickets, a sort of wilderness, which stretched from the garden boundaries to the edge of a plateau, below which lay a wild valley, with a chain of wilder peaks and crags forming the horizon. But none of the court had ever cared to explore the wilderness, if they were even aware of its existence, so no more need be said of it at present. The royal family leaned upon the parapet of the terrace, whence they had a bird's-eye view of the big square immediately below, and the picturesquely irregular buildings, above whose gabled red roofs grim watch-towers and quaint spires or cupolas rose here and there. Down in the square swarms of tiny figures were clustering round the public fountains, which spouted jets that, as they flashed in the afternoon sun, were seen to be of a purple hue. "'Must be wine,' remarked the Crown Prince. "'If the same tap we had at lunch, the poor devils have my sympathy.' "'I think, Sidney,' said the Queen, "'that we ought all to go for a drive presently, just round the principal streets. I'm sure the, um, populace would appreciate it.' "'If you think it's expected of us, my love,' he said, "'otherwise, well—' I should have rather liked to see a little more of the palace. We don't even know where our own bedrooms are to be yet. "'The governor's right there, Mater,' said Prince Clarence. "'We'd better get settled down before we do anything else.' "'Perhaps we had,' Queen Selina allowed. "'I'll get that good old Mrs. Fogelpluck to take us round the house.' And after sending for the court godmother, she started, accompanied by the family and several of her ladies-in-waiting, on a tour of inspection. Possibly the suites of halls, each more magnificent than the last, the endless galleries and corridors, the walls decorated with sumptuous but bizarre hangings, the floors inlaid with marble and precious stones, which were probably priceless and certainly slippery, possibly all these contributed towards the upsetting of Queen Selina's equanimity, but her manner was deplorably lacking in dignity and repose. She treated her ladies, for instance, with a politeness that came nearer subservience than ever. It was, "'Pray go first, dear Princess Rapunzelhauser. "'After you, Baroness. "'Please, Countess, I really couldn't think of preceding you.' At every doorway, till Daphne, as she noted the elevated eyebrows and covert smiles of the others, felt too much shame for her sovereign for any thought of amusement. However, the Queen showed more self-assertion in her treatment of the court godmother, which was characterized by some hauteur. And now, I suppose, Mrs. Fogelpluck, we have seen all the reception rooms. We shall probably have to entertain on rather a large scale, but they appear to be fairly suitable. What I have not yet seen is a room where I could receive ordinary callers. I have always made a practice, since I was first married, of being at home on the first and third Fridays, and though circumstances have altered, I intend to continue it. 
The fairy, though she was rather at a loss to understand either the reason or the necessity for this, said that there was a chamber called the Queen's Bower, which would probably meet Her Majesty's requirements, and led the way to it accordingly. It was about sixty feet square, with a high vaulted roof of lapis lazuli set with large diamond stars. The walls were decorated with huge frescoes representing legends, many of which Princess Ruby recognized as familiar. "'This will do, Mrs. Fogelpluck,' pronounced the Queen. "'At least it can be made to do, with a little rearrangement. As it is, there are none of the ordinary refinements, such as art cushions, cake and bread and butter stand, occasional tables, and little silver knick-knacks, which a lady's boudoir of any pretensions to elegance should have, just the trifles that express the owner and uh, constitute home. I must have all these provided before I can use this as a sanctum. I should certainly have expected a palace like this to be furnished with more regard to comfort. I should have expected a billiard-room or two, said Prince Clarence. But these courtier chaps tell me they don't even know what billiards are. Pretty sort of palace, this. I think it's a perfectly lovely palace, Princess Ruby declared. It hasn't got a single piano in it anywhere. I know, because I've asked. I'm sorry to hear it, my dear, said her mother, because I particularly wished Miss Heritage to get you on with your music. And if that is impossible, I shall have to consider whether I can keep her at all. Oh, mummy, you won't send her away, when you know I've never been good with anybody before, and never shall be either. Queen Selina was quite alive to the advantages of retaining Daphne's services. Well, Ruby, she said, I shall allow Miss Heritage to stay on, as your companion, she had already seen her way to proposing a reduction of salary, and she can make herself generally useful to me as well. Ruby went dancing back to Daphne. "'You're not to be my governess any more, Miss Heritage, dear,' she announced, "'because I shan't require one now. But I've got Mummy to let you stay on as companion. Aren't you glad?' Daphne answered that she was, and she would certainly have been sorry to leave Märchenland quite so soon. "'And now tell me, Mr. Chamberlain, Baron Troitz, I mean,' the Queen was saying, "'what time do you dine here?' "'Whenever your Majesties please,' was the reply." "'All the same to us,' said the king affably. "'No wish to put you out at all.' "'Then, with your permission, sire, the banquet will be served an hour hence in the banqueting hall.' "'A banquet!' cried the queen. "'I would rather we dined quietly, without any fuss, on our first night here.' "'It is the night of your majesty's coronation,' the court chamberlain reminded her. "'The court would be deeply disappointed.' if so auspicious an event were not celebrated in a befitting manner. "'Oh,' said the Queen, "'then it will be full dress, I suppose, with crowns?' "'I hope not crowns,' put in King Sidney, who had taken the earliest opportunity of leaving his own in a corner. "'A crown is such an uncomfortable thing to eat in, at least mine is.' The court chamberlain gave it as his decision that crowns should certainly be worn, at least through the earlier courses of the meal. "'All you've got to do, Governor,' said Clarence, "'is to keep yours from splashing into the soup. A bit of elastic round your chin will do that all right.' "'And I presume,' said the Queen, 
we shall wear these robes we have on. Oh, we shall find a change of costume upstairs? Then, as there is not too much time for dressing, I should like to see my room at once, Mrs. Fogelpluck. Sidney, she panted a little later, as, escorted by the marshal and baron, and followed by the court godmother and the ladies and lords-in-waiting, they were making the ascent of the grand staircase. One of the first things we must do here is to put in a lift. I really can't be expected to climb all these stairs several times a day. They do take it out of one, my dear, he admitted, and the lift would certainly be a great improvement. At the head of the staircase was a long tapestry-hung gallery, in which were the doors opening into the suites of rooms prepared for royalty. Queen Selina, on reaching hers, could not bring herself to allow her ladies of the bedchamber to assist at her toilette. "'So very kind of you, Princess, and you too, my dear Baroness,' she protested. "'But I couldn't think of troubling you. I couldn't, indeed. I should feel quite ashamed to let you. I can manage perfectly well by myself. That is... Miss Heritage will come in, after she has attended to Princess Ruby, and do all I require, and then she can go on and help you, Edna. "'Thank you, mother,' said Edna, "'but I should prefer having someone who is more accustomed to dressing hair.' After putting Ruby into a robe of golden tissue and silken stockings and satin shoes, which, being quite as splendid as those she had just laid aside, afforded the child intense satisfaction, Daphne went to Queen Selina's tiring chamber, a spacious apartment with hangings of strange colours embroidered with royal emblems. It was separated by a curtained arch, through which a glimpse could be caught of the royal bedchamber, with the colossal and gorgeously canopied state bed. She found the Queen still in an early stage of her toilette, and in a highly fractious state of mind. "'I expected you to be here before this, Miss Heritage,' she said. I've been waiting all this time for you to fasten me up the back, which I couldn't possibly ask any of my court ladies to do. I'm sure I don't know what goes on next. Oh, do you think the, um, stomacher before the ruff? Very well. It's impossible to judge the effect in such a wretched light. The chamber, it should be said, was illuminated by a number of perfumed flambeaux stuck in elaborately wrought silver sconces. Even at Inglegarth I had a pair of electric lights over my dressing-table. And how on earth any queen can be expected to dress at a shabby, tarnished old cheval glass like this is more than I can conceive. Upon which a thin but silvery voice immediately responded, As dimly can I understand how you are queen of Märchenland. Upon my word, Miss Heritage, exclaimed Queen Selina, with an angry flush on her oatmeal-hued cheeks. "'I am surprised at such impertinence. From you!' "'It... it wasn't me, ma'am,' said Daphne, with a heroic effort to keep her countenance. "'As it was certainly not myself, and you are the only other person in the room, Miss Heritage, your denial is impudent as well as useless.' Daphne could only point speechlessly to the mirror. "'Really, Miss Heritage,' This goes beyond all. What next? Reflected here there should have been a younger and far fairer queen, continued the voice in a doggerel as devoid of polish as the mirror itself. It does appear to come from... But who ever heard of a looking-glass talking? said the mystified queen. 
"'Little Snow White's stepmother had a mirror that answered her, ma'am,' said Daphne. "'And she was a queen in Märchenland, I believe. Perhaps this is the very one.' It would, no doubt, have proceeded to make some even more unflattering comments if Daphne had not, with much presence of mind, turned its face to the wall. How she knew that this would silence it, she could not have said it herself, but it certainly did. "'I have no reason for believing that any such person as Little Snow White ever existed,' said Queen Selina. "'But whoever that glass belonged to, I will not have it here. I would have it smashed, if it wasn't unlucky.' but it must be removed to the attics before I come up here to undress. Really, I never knew such a country as this is. Boar's heads trying to speak at luncheon, and mirrors making personal remarks, and everything so strange and unnatural. But you take it all as a matter of course, Miss Heritage. Nothing seems to surprise you. I think, ma'am, said Daphne, because I've always known that, if I ever did get to Märchenland, it would be very much like this. "'Considering that you had no better means of knowing what it would be like than I had myself,' replied the Queen, "'I can only ascribe that to affectation.' "'Surely there must be more of the crown jewellery than I have been given as yet.' "'Yes, there may be something in that chest.' "'Good gracious me! What diamonds! I don't think the dear Duchess of Gleneagles herself can have anything to approach them.' "'Yes, you can put me on a riviere, and two of the biggest ropes of pearls. "'It won't do to go down looking dowdy. "'Dear me,' she added, as she took up the pendant she had bought from Daphne twenty-four hours before, "'to think of my giving so much money for this paltry thing. "'If I had known then what I do now, I should never have—but, of course, I don't mean that I should think of going back on it.' "'I'm afraid, ma'am,' said Daphne, "'I couldn't pay it back now. I sent the cheque last night.' "'I'm quite content to bear the loss, Miss Heritage. And, by the way, you may not be aware of it, but it is hardly correct or usual, in speaking to me, to call me ma'am.' "'I've always understood, ma'am,' said Daphne, "'that our own queen—in England, I mean—' "'How the Queen of England may allow herself to be addressed is entirely her own affair,' said Queen Selina handsomely. "'I have nothing whatever to do with that. "'But I am Queen of Märchenland, Miss Heritage, "'and I shall be obliged by your addressing me as Your Majesty on all occasions.' "'Certainly, Your Majesty,' said Daphne, "'executing a profound curtsy with a little smile that she was quite unable to repress.' I assure your majesty that your majesty may rely on my addressing your majesty as your majesty for the future, your majesty. That is better, Miss Heritage, much better. A little overdone, but still. And now, she added, you had better go and see if Princess Edna wants any assistance. You need not trouble to change your own dress, as, of course, you will not sit down to dinner with us. "'She's too priceless,' thought Daphne, when she was outside on the gallery, and could indulge her a sense of humour and safety. "'Still, I don't think I could stand her very long, if it weren't for Ruby.' "'I say, Mater,' the crowned prince called out a few minutes afterwards, outside his mother's door, "'how much longer are you and the governor going to be? All night?' "'You can come in, Clarence,' she said. 
How soon your father will be ready, I can't say. I finished my dressing hours ago. King Sidney, following her example, had declined the good offices of his gentleman, and there were sounds from his dressing-room on the farther side of the bedchamber which indicated that he was in some difficulties in consequence. "'My aunt!' exclaimed Clarence, as he saw his mother fully arrayed. "'You've got em all on this time, Mater, and no mistake. "'So have you, Governor,' he added, as King Sidney joined them with rather a sheepish air. "'Only, are you sure you've got yours on right? "'I mean to say, that ruff looks a bit cock-eyed.' "'It's given me more trouble than any white tie, my boy, but it must do as it is. "'Ah, I got that bristly-haired chap, what's his name, Hans Meinigel, to put on mine for me. "'Didn't any of yours give you a hand?' "'They offered to, most kindly,' said King Sidney. "'But, well, I didn't altogether relish letting them dress me. "'They'd have made a jolly sight neater job of it than you have. "'Keep still a jiff till I've tucked its tape in. "'There, that's more like it. "'And I say, you and the mater had better hurry. "'You're keeping the whole court waiting for you.' "'Why didn't you tell us before?' said the Queen in a violent flurry. "'Where, where are the court?' all drawn up in the hall at the foot of the big staircase. They can't make a move till you come down and lead the way in to dinner, you know. I—I'd rather not descend all those steps in public, objected the king. Confoundedly slippery. Eh, couldn't we go by the back stairs, my love? And find ourselves in our own kitchen, said the queen. Certainly not, Sidney. The grand staircase is the only dignified way down, and you'd better give me your arm at once." "'Very well, my dear, very well. But I'm pretty sure I shall slip.' "'You must not slip, Sidney. Neither of us must slip. If we did, it would produce a very bad impression. Still, it will be safer if we go down one by one and hold on to the banisters.' "'No, I say,' cried the Crown Prince. "'You can't do that. Might as well crawl down on all fours. Buck up, both of you. Try and throw a little swank into it.' Their Majesties accomplished the descent amidst the congratulatory blare of the silver trumpets without actual mishap, for there was nothing in the bearing of either sovereign that could justly be described by the term swank, and indeed, if any fault could be found, it would have been in quite the opposite direction. Of the banquet itself little need be said here. The numerous courses were appetizing and admirably served, while, to the Queen's relief, none of the dishes showed any desire to take part in the conversation. The members of the court did more than look on this time, being entertained with other guests, amongst whom were the President and Council, at cross-tables below the principal one on the dais. Clarence, seated with his family, the ex-regent and the court godmother at the high table, wished more than once that he could have sat by Daphne, whom he could see at no great distance. He noted her perfect ease and the pretty graciousness with which she received the attentions which her neighbours seemed only too anxious to press upon her. "'Anyone would think she'd lived with swells all her life,' he thought. "'She may have, for anything I know. But, of course, even if she had, the fact did not make her his equal now.' Towards the close of the feast, King Sidney, who had long since disposed of his crown underneath his chair, considered that the occasion demanded a speech. His effort might have been a greater success if he had abstained from jocularity, which was not by any means his forte. It is possible that a far happier sample of British humour would have failed to set Märchenland tables in a roar, but his hearers were either unaware that he intended to be humorous, 
weren't sensible that his purpose had not been achieved, for they listened in puzzled but depressed silence, while the effect of his facetiousness on Daphne was to render her hot and cold by turns. The banquet over, the court chamberlain deferentially informed the royal party that they were expected to lead the procession to the ballroom. Clarence, who had unfortunately come away from Inglegarth without his cigarette-case, was longing to smoke, and hung behind for that purpose. But on applying to the marshal, he was told that only common soldiers ever smoked in Märchenland. With some trouble, a highly flavoured pipe, a tinder-box, and a pouch containing a dried herb that appeared to be the local substitute for tobacco were procured for him. However, a very short experience convinced him that duty required him to put in an appearance at the state ball. The ballroom was a long, lofty hall, lit by thousands of candles set in great golden hoops, the light they gave being multiplied almost to infinity by the fact that the walls and ceiling were lined with elaborately engraved looking-glass, which, fortunately perhaps for the Queen, was dumb. When he entered, the musicians were already fiddling, piping and fluting in a gallery high up at one end facing a raised platform, where his father and mother, looking extremely hot and uncomfortable, were seated on gorgeous chairs. A stately measure was being performed, which might have been a gavotte, or minuet, or pavane, for anything he could say. All he knew was that the figures were quite unfamiliar to him. But Daphne seemed to have learned them, or had they come to her by instinct, for she was dancing in one of the sets. He watched her lissom form as she moved through the intricate evolutions, till he began to envy the Count von Daumerlingstam, her elegant but undersized partner. However, he flattered himself that he would have no difficulty in cutting out little Daumerlingstam. It seemed to him that that dance would never be over, but the moment it was, he made his way to Daphne with an air that showed he was fully aware of the distinction he was conferring. "'Enjoying yourself, Miss Heritage?' he said. "'Don't know what that last dance was.' but not much vim about it, if you ask me. Tell you what, I'll get those fiddler fellows up there to play something a bit livelier, and you and I'll show this crowd a two-step, what? This is a great honour, your royal highness, said Daphne, after sinking demurely in the regulation curtsy, but I must not accept it until I have Her Majesty's permission. Which I'm quite sure she won't give, she thought to herself with much satisfaction. Oh, I say! What rot! The mater won't mind, and if she does... It would be very disagreeable for me, your royal highness. Oh, well, he said, I'll go and ask her. As Daphne had anticipated, Queen Selina's refusal was most emphatic. You ought to know, Clarence, that it's utterly out of the question, she said, and I'm surprised at Miss Heritage having the presumption to expect it. She didn't, mater. She said I'd better ask you first. "'Then it seems she has a better sense of her position than you have of yours, Clarence. I am told you have been seen walking about with a disgusting pipe in your mouth, and that several people were remarking on it. Now you are actually proposing to make yourself conspicuous by dancing at a state ball with your sister's companion. I have always credited you with being a man of the world, but if this is the way you are going on—' He felt the sting of so unwanted a rebuke. "'I dare say you're right, Mater,' he acknowledged. "'I'll be more careful after this.' "'I hope you will, I'm sure. "'As Crown Prince you mustn't think of any partner under the rank of Baroness. 
ask one of the princesses first, or you'll give more offence. Righto, was all he said, and, feeling that it would be awkward to make any explanation or excuses to Daphne, he solved the difficulty by avoiding her for the rest of the evening. Princess Goldern and Fingerleinigan, a prepossessing but not very forthcoming damsel, enjoyed the distinction of being commanded by the Crown Prince as his first partner. He had had no experience in conversing with princesses, and she did not exert herself either to put him more at his ease or prevent him from losing himself frequently in the mazes of the dance. Once or twice he was oppressed by a painful suspicion that he had seen her making a little grimace of self-pity at the Countess Gensehirtin. But elaborately engraved mirrors are not very trustworthy, and he might have been mistaken. Still, he was thankful when the dance, in which he was conscious of having done himself so little credit, came to an end. "'Edna, old girl,' he remarked subsequently to the Princess Royal, "'I call this a rotten ball. Can't stick dancing with any more of these princesses.' Princess Edna, it appeared, had been no more favourably impressed by the courtiers. "'They've simply no conversation,' she complained, "'and no ideas about any serious subjects.' "'No, I've noticed that,' he said. "'And they think they're the only people who can dance.' I tell you what, you and I'll show em how we do the tango. That'll make em open their eyes. It did. As has already been said, both he and Edna, as persons who could not afford to be out of the movement, had taken lessons that winter in the recent importation from dubious Argentine dancing saloons. They danced it now with conscientious care, Prince Clarence exhibiting as much abandon as a man could who was dancing with his sister but the court were not sufficiently enlightened to appreciate the performance. They evidently considered it not only uncouth and undignified, but more than a little improper, and their general attitude conveyed that the couple were committing one of those temporary indiscretions which it was not only etiquette but charity to pass over in silence. "'Capital!' said King Sidney, clapping his hands at the conclusion. "'Uncommonly well they dance together, eh, my dear?' never seen them do it before. "'And you will never see them do it again, Sidney,' replied the Queen, "'for I'm much mistaken if they haven't broken up the ball.' She was not very far wrong, for, although after some minutes of awestruck silence dancing was resumed, it was carried on with a restraint and gloom that soon decided the royal family to retire from the ballroom. The Queen forbore from expressing her sentiments just then, either to her son or daughter, with the latter of whom, indeed, she seldom, if ever, ventured to find fault. But she felt that her first evening in the palace had not been a brilliant success. This feeling impelled her to be more ingratiating than ever to her ladies of the bedchamber, whose services in disrobing her she was compelled to accept, though under protest. "'So much obliged,' she said, as they finally withdrew with glacial ceremony. "'Quite ashamed to have troubled you, really.' "'Good night, dear princess. Good night. We shall breakfast at eight-thirty. But en famille, you know, quite en famille. So don't dream of coming down.' "'I hope, Sidney,' she began later, as he joined her in the royal bedchamber, "'I hope you have treated the gentleman who undressed you with proper consideration. It is so important.' "'Good gracious! What's that you've got on? A nightcap?' "'Those, um, noblemen seem to consider it the correct thing, my love, 
and they've put me on this nightgown too. I see they have, embroidered all over with impossible animals. You look a perfect sight in it. I'm told they're, um, hippogriffs, my dear, the, um, royal crest or emblem or something. I should have much preferred pyjamas myself, but it seems they are not procurable here. "'Everything in this country is in a disgracefully backward state,' declared the Queen, "'and I can see I shall have hard work to bring it up to my ideas of what is proper. I shall begin by putting that old Mrs. Fogelplug in her proper place.' "'I should be careful, my dear,' advised King Sidney. "'After all, you know, she's by way of being a fairy.' "'So she says. But fairy or no fairy, she's much too familiar.' and if she cannot conform to my rules, she will have to go. That's all. Well, my dear, I dare say when you put it to her like that, began the king, who had by this time succeeded in clambering into the immense bed, and whose head was already buried in an enormous pillow. As I was saying, he continued hazily, put it to her in, in that way, and, and, no doubt, very probably, no reason to suppose any but here his voice sank into an unintelligible murmur until it rose presently into his first but not by any means last snore in the character of monarch End of chapter five